TED Audio Collective. Everything you're looking at right now was once an idea in somebody's head. The shoes, my pants, this stage, the sidewalk you walked on, the subway you took, the streets, this building, the lights, your glasses, the microphone, my gloves, was all immaterial. And so for me, I was like, oh, that is what design is. It's the series of mechanisms or processes to bring thought into materiality. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Dario Calmiz talks about photography and about the world that's been designed around us. We are surrounded by thought, literally solid thought. We are moving in thought at all times. Hi, everyone. It's Debbie. One of the most consistent themes we hear on Design Matters is that creativity needs to be nurtured in order to thrive. That's why I want to recommend another podcast that's designed to fuel your creativity. It's called Spark and Fire, and in each episode, you'll hear a legendary creator share the story behind bringing an iconic work to life. The stories on Spark and Fire are crafted around memorable takeaways that you can bring into your own creative practice, whether you're a designer, an architect, a visual artist, a writer, or a creative thinker in any other medium. And my favorite part is the creativity that goes into the production of the show itself, with original cinematic music and exquisite sound design. It's really a joy to listen to. So take a moment right now to search for Spark and Fire in your podcast player and follow the show to hear new episodes every week. I think you're going to love it. In 2020, Dario Calmiz made history as the first Black photographer to shoot a cover for Vanity Fair in the magazine's long history. It was an enigmatic portrait of the actress Viola Davis, her partly bare back facing the viewer, urging us to not look away. Despite his success as a first-rate photographer, Dario Calmiz is so much more. He directs shows for big fashion brands, and he's an accomplished professor. He writes about design and art for various publications, and he hosts a podcast called The Institute of Black Imagination. He's also a Loeb Fellow at Harvard University. In December of 2022, I spoke with Dario Calmiz for Creative Mornings, a phenomenal lecture series for the creative community founded by Tina Roth Eisenberg. It took place in front of a live audience at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. I hope you enjoy this very special live episode of Design Matters. So this month's theme for Creative Mornings is abundance. And Milton Glaser once said, if you perceive the universe as one of abundance, then it will be. If you think of the universe as one of scarcity, then it will be. And Milton goes on to say that he always thought that there was enough to go around. There are good enough ideas in the universe and enough nourishment. Dario, you've stated that if there's an abundance of something, that you share it. Mm -hmm. Have you always had this mentality around the notion of abundance? 
You know, I'm not sure. You know, I think sometimes I don't. I just yeah. I I, I have this feeling that like whatever you have, just offer it. You know, to someone else. I think it's a way of showing gratitude. Actually, it keeps the river flowing. You know, I think it's 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 coming from a scarcity mindset set of you know hoarding and holding on to that actually limits you and limits life and limits the things that you're after. Um, but in sharing, you know, in giving, it 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 just yeah, it just keeps the energy flowing. And I think even we were talking about the Institute of Black Imagination and it all started with me inheriting 2000 books from a famous artist, uh, Jeffrey Holder. And, you know, somewhere on the inside, I was like, oh my God, like I would love to just be lost in these books and hold on to these books, right? And pull from them and reference them. And I, I don't, I don't even define it, but something inside me knew that I just couldn't. Right, I had to share it. Like I had to share this knowledge. I needed other people to have access to this information, and so that actually what is what undergirded the Institute of Black Imagination. So yeah, I think there's something inside that says, yeah, give. You have an abundance of identities. <laughs> we talked about identities a little bit before our interview. Um, you're an artist, a photographer, a sculptor, a writer, a podcast host, a teacher, a show and casting director, and the CEO of the Institute of Black Imagination, all of which I'd like to talk to you about today. Um, you've said that you think we all have multiple identities. Mm-hmm. But because we often align ourselves to specific identities and professions, it keeps us from other modalities of being. Mm-hmm. And I was really intrigued by that notion because it's sort of the opposite of abundance. Mm-hmm. When we are holding on to an identity, it forces us to remain sort of intact as opposed to growing and evolving. And I'm wondering how you were able to break that trap and sort of have these expanded versions of yourself. Well, one, I have to, first of all, thank my parents. Um, You know, my parents really allowed for me to simply be curious and explore all the things that I found interesting. If it was, you know, microscopes or telescopes or chemistry sets or piano lessons or karate, like, you know, I was able to explore all of these things. And I think on some level, it came down to just pure curiosity. You know, if I'm being totally honest, you know, I'm just really fascinated by like what is possible. And, you know, you try some things and they don't work out and you try other things and, you know, they resonate and you want to go with it. And so um, that's something that I've done. I've literally just followed things, you know, that I was interested in, you know, most of my life. And luckily, um, you know, supported by my parents and supported by friends and communities that have allowed me to do that. You grew up in North City, Missouri, which is in the suburbs of St. Louis. 
And you've talked about how you were raised in a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, your father is a pastor, but also a substance abuse therapist. Mm-hmm. And your mother is a nurse, but also a seamstress. Now, is it true she sewed all your clothes? Um, she didn't sew all of my clothes, but um, she sewed a significant portion of them, uh, particularly my church clothes. And if I I don't know how many people here grew up in like a black Baptist church. Um, Raise your hands. Okay. So you all know what the pastor's anniversary is. And it's, a you know, something that we have every year and we would, you know, get dressed up and whatever. And my mother would allow, literally allow me to imagine and design whatever I wanted. So like, I remember one year, you know, you know, MC Hammer was huge, you know, like in the nineties <laughs> and she made me this incredible like MC Hammer suit with like the big baggy pants and like the bolero jacket. Um, and I so, had one of those too, by the way. Oh, okay. See, <laughs> <laughs> I actually just met him last week in San wow. Francisco. Random. He offered me a Mentos and said he wanted my boots. <laughs> As one does. Um, I understand that your mom is quite the style maven and instructed you on all the do's and don'ts Mm -hmm. of dressing. She taught you things like your belt should always match your shoes. Was wondering if that was still the case. No belt. Um, Do you still heed her sartorial instructions? Actually, she now heeds mine. (laughs) (laughs) She sends me photos from dressing rooms. She's like, oh, what shoes should I wear with this? Like bracelets, earrings. Yeah. So it's always, it's interesting. My mother and I have always had this style dialogue for most of our, like my entire life. And even when she was um, sewing, um, that was like our connection. She would, you know, I got it honest. Um, I'm also a procrastinator, a re, you know, I'm trying to be better. Um, How with all of those multi-hyphenate <laughs> titles can you possibly think you're a procrastinator? Well, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I'm always <laughs> just like, you know, well, actually, I'm actually much, much, much better. Um, but my mother would um, be up until like five o'clock in the morning, like sewing my sister's cotillion dresses. And I would just be sitting there watching her. Like I would just, our basement, um, you know, you can open the door and the stairs go down and it's open and so I would just sit on the stairs and just like watch my mother sew until like five o'clock in the morning like it was just this thing we had my mother was also a seamstress ah. she made all of my clothes growing up we had no money so that was the only way that I could get any kind of new clothes I learned how to sew as well I just want to let you know bragging a little bit here everyone I won the Home Economics Award in high school because of my sewing ability. Uh, My red corduroy overalls were among the most popular of my constructions. Just letting you all know that had an applique butterfly um, embroidered on the the front panel. She also taught me how to draw because she used to draw images of all the clothes that she made because she was a professional seamstress. She made clothes for other people. She would draw those outfits. Um, You've stated that the women in your family were some of your early influences and inspired a bona fide interest in the worlds of art and fashion. But you also come from a family of musicians and have said that you discovered your voice as a tool of expression at a very young age. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what that means and how you were able to do that. It really started in elementary school. 
growing up in a Korean family and, and yes, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, um, I really consider like the font of all creativity. You know, she was also uh, a singer, played piano, a writer, you know, a ceramicist. Um, and all of her children, including my father, have tons of these gifts and they talk about them and um, things like that. Um, but in elementary school, it was it really came from me being bored in church while my father was preaching, and I would just read the hymnals, and I was memorizing hymns while my father preached because <laughs> I was not paying attention. And we won't then, tell anyone. And then in fourth grade or even third grade, I was in elementary school, and. Um, we were in music class and it was Black History Month, so we're going to sing a spiritual for Black History Month. And it was Wade in the Water. And when it came time to, like like the verse came or whatever, I just started singing it because I knew it. And my teacher was like, oh my God, like your voice. And I was like, what? And she was like, you need to sing the solo for the, you know, the program or whatever. And, you know, that was when I first began that this was something maybe that other people didn't have or whatever, because everyone in my family sings. It was never anything that felt quite special. And, you know, over time, you know, finding that, and maybe, and maybe this is something that we all have, right, is not understanding like the power of our voice or not understanding that we have a like unique perspective on the world that people want to hear. Um, and so I discovered that in various many, you know, various ways. And if you think about all of the, you know, identities, it's really me saying the same thing in different languages. Mm each medium allows for a certain type of communication. And I think that is where that really comes from and, and really finding later that writing was an incredible way to also not only find one's voice, but to also really kind of weave together seemingly disparate ideas um, and then share them with somebody else so they can follow along with your thought process. By the time you were 10 years old, you were already studying the piano. You also studied classical voice, acting, and dance beginning in your teens. You began performing professionally by the time you were 15. What kinds of productions were you a part of? So the first, my first professional show was um, a chorus line. What uh, part did you play? I was in the ensemble <laughs> because I was 15. Um, but it was at a professional theater. So um, in, in St. Louis, um, we have a theater called the Muni, and it's America's largest and oldest outdoor theater. And um, it seats around 14,000. And yeah, I went to, you know, audition and there was, I made a friend there at the audition who taught me how to do a double pirouette. I'd never even heard of that before. And can you still do it? I can still do it. Ooh, the gauntlet is <laughs> down. <laughs> I could do a triple. No, I'm kidding. I mean, I can't. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, and then other things like, you know, you know, Missouri Honors Choir, like all of those things that, you know, one does as an ambitious little 
kid. <laughs> it's early. Um, what did you, at that point, what did you want to do professionally? Did you want to be a performer? I don't think I really knew. You know, I, I enjoyed it, but I actually always thought, and this is so strange, but I always thought that academics and art were silos and that I had to make a choice. Um, and so I was always kind of straddling this line. But, you know, as far as like what I wanted to be, I actually thought I was going to be a, a psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah, I was going to be a school for psychology. Yeah. You got your college degree in psychology and mm-hmm. mass media mm-hmm. at Rockhurst University in Kansas City. What made you, what provoked you or motivated you to think about being a psychiatrist? You know, it's so funny. Like, my father's a therapist. And as much as I did not think that I was <laughs> my father, I'm totally my father. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, you sur- you're surrounded by these things when you grow up, you know, what your parents do and they really influence you. And both of my parents really were in professions of service. And I really loved psychology because I just loved the human mind. But I also loved like pissing people off because and this is something I used to do to my elementary school teachers all the time. And I'm sure they were just over it. But if I didn't see you snap, like I didn't trust you. Hmm. And so I would push people to the point where like whatever facade they had up, like as teacher or something, like once I saw that, I was like, okay, like they're a human being. And so, you know, I think like psychology, the mind, these are things that were always very interesting to me. So you were an early provocateur. See, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I read that when you got to college, you started questioning everything you'd Mm -hmm. ever been told about yourself. Mm -hmm. This included your own sexuality, what it meant to believe in God, and even music and art. What type of epiphanies did you have about who you were? You know, it was, so I went to um, this small Jesuit school called Rockhurst University. Um, There were a couple of things. Um, One, I remember we were in maybe art history class or something like this, and we were learning about the Hagia Sophia um, in Istanbul. And I'm sitting there hearing about this amazing, amazing, you know, what we would call a cathedral with, you know, the largest man-made dome. And I'm like, why am I just learning about this? I was like, I was a good student and I'm curious. And why am I just learning about this in college? And I'm like, and this is a very specific school, right? Like, I'm like, if I was maybe at a different school or maybe even like a state school, we may not even be studying this. And so it, it opened up that there was this entire other, I started to see the limits of my education, which I thought was vast and started to see the very Western European lens through which I was educated, right? And then you start thinking about, oh, wait, I was getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning for AP European history, and we didn't talk about the Eastern world. We didn't talk about these things. And and I think it was really upset. Like, how could this have been kept from me? Like, what are you talking about? Um, But I would say the biggest epiphany, um, so again, my father's a pastor. I grew up in the church. I was taught that the Bible was the unmitigated word of God. It was from his mouth to the page. 
and um, we had to take theology. And the teacher asked us to bring the American Standard Bible to class. Now, if anyone here grew up in the church, you know that there's multiple versions and multiple, you know, um, translations of the Bible. And if you have the wrong translation, you just kind of like make it work. And so I was just like, I'm not buying a new Bible. I'm just going to bring this good old King James to class. Like, it's going to be fine. And then the teacher says, turn to Second Maccabees. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I mean, I, lit- I literally like looked over to another student and I was like, wait, what? There are these other books of the Bible? And nobody told me, right? You know, these, you know, the Apocrypha, you know, First and Second Maccabees, you know, the Book of Wisdom, the Book of Light, and you know, then we're learning about, um, you know, Martin Luther, and you know, them taking, you know, anyway, I won't get into the construction of the Bible. Um, Please do. <laughs> I mean, we don't have a lot of time, you know, the yeah. Septuagint, like you know, G- yeah. But for me, it all came crumbling down. Mm. It all came crumbling down Um, because that was the one thing, right, that culturally was the through line of my entire life, of my community, you know, of my identity. And all of a sudden, this the ineffable had a chink in it. And like any information that we learn, you know, we're, we're, we're walking through the life, you know, we're walking through life with certain paradigms in place, you know, kind of like a room. And when something new is introduced, either you rearrange everything to make space for it or you reject it so that everything stays the same. And the easy thing to do is just to reject the new and let everything stay the same. But that was an undeniable thing, right? And so to let that in, Everything had to change and everything came into question. And then I saw the hand of man and what I thought was the hand of God. And not only that, I remember talking to my father excitedly about these books that I had discovered. (laughs) Discovered. Um, And I was like, Dad, like, oh, my God, like, I was reading, like, the Book of Wisdom. Like, it's amazing. Like, you'll be able to, like, find some really great sermons out of these scriptures. Like, this is amazing. (laughs) And he was like, oh, no, those are the forbidden books. (gasps) Hmm. How did you, how did you manage through that type of conversation? Well, I also started to see that, that religion and those who were like leaders and upholding it also weren't interested in the truth. Mm -hmm. They were interested in maintaining. Right. And, and I was just like, but if you're a, if you are who you say you are and you're about like this life, like, if you got new information about something that you're passionate about or you love, like, wouldn't you want to know it? Wouldn't you want to share it? Wouldn't you want to enlighten other people? And there was just, like, wall of rejection to it. And I was just like, oh, okay, got it. So even this isn't as real as I thought it was. And so, yeah, so, you know, when 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 the core of your kind of existence or faith is shattered like that at 19, everything Everything is up for question at that point. How did that impact the type of work you were making? You know, it's so interesting. I never really made that connection. But I think that impacts everything that I'm making 
um, you know, I don't take anything at surface level. Um, I'm always interrogating systems. I'm always looking for what's not being said and questioning everything. I think everything is worthy of being questioned. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, everything. After you graduated, you decided to move to New York City and allowed yourself one year to pursue professional performance. Um, what kind of performer were you envisioning yourself at that point? Um, so I was doing musical theater mostly, and I did some soap work. If you dig deep enough, you can find me on All My Children. Um, but but yeah, I, I literally um, decided to... The decision was to move to New York for one year, try out the acting thing. If I'm terrible, I'm going to go back to grad school for either cognitive neuroscience or psych assessment, which is designing um, psychological tests. Or, if, you know, if I'm good, you know, maybe I'll stick with it. And so, yeah, I just kept going and was able to travel the world. But it was mostly musical theater, singing and dancing. And in that space, um, as much as I loved it, I found that there was more that I wanted to do and more that I wanted to say. And so as much as I loved it, once I got into it, I was feeling the limitations of it. And so uh, Pivot came into photography. In that traveling that you did, you took a three-week trip to Europe where you purchased your first DSLR camera, which you've stated bridged the gap between your technical side and your artistic side. And when you returned to New York, you continued to work as a performer, but then began collaborating with your colleagues and friends to take headshots and create stylized portraits. At that point, you decided to go back to school to get a master's degree from SVA in, in photography. But despite your degree and accomplishments and a level of professional success, you don't consider yourself to be a photographer. Yes. Um, and no. Okay. Um, and I think that this goes back to kind of like identity, um, you know, and to let you all in on a conversation that Debbie and I were having um, pre, pre-interview, we were having a conversation about identity and that identity isn't necessarily who you are, but identities are things that you hold. You are the vessel that holds these different identities. And, you know, identity is something that comes from the outside. People are telling you how you are seen versus you defining it for yourself. What we find, what we call identity is really one's interest in an identity. And, you know, to be seen as a photographer, it's, it's like a yes and more than I am not a photographer, right? So with photography, I just find that it, it's just not the whole story, you know? And so I'm like, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm a photographer, but I'm also not a photographer. For me, it is not what I live and breathe and move in 24-7, although I'm always looking at images. I love taking images. It is a mode of expression for me. But photography, is, you know, we, we all are flowing rivers. And what does it mean to be defined by, like, you know, how one feels when they put your, you know, when they step into it in that one moment, you know, three seconds later, it's going to change. And I think that's really it. I felt really hedged in by that. Since graduating, you've had a number of different jobs and opportunities. You worked as a staff photographer for Essence Magazine and the Council of Fashion Designers of America. Um, 
2013, you became the casting director for Kirby Jean Raymond's Pierre Moss fashion shows and then went on to become the director. And you titled the 2016 show Double Bind, Mm. which was acclaimed for its messages going beyond fashion, not surprisingly, to address depression and Black Lives Matter. And you said this about the topic matter. The black experience in America is the ultimate double bind. It's a place where natural born citizens promised life, liberty, and property live an immigrant experience in the only land they've known as home. A place where black culture is praised, commodified, and appropriated, while black peoples are marginalized and serve as scapegoats for the ills of American society. And we can't escape, and we can't talk about it. Five years later, six years later, do you feel the same way? Um, see, that's why writing is good. You know, like you can really get at the thing. I was like, yes, that is it. That's it. <laughs> I thought so too. <laughs> I was like, that is it. It's like it just so clearly like articulates it. Um, are we still there? Hmm. Yes. You know, yes, it is because because there hasn't been um, a reckoning for not only like this country, but I think particularly for white Americans. When we talk about oppression, when we talk about even like racism, so much of it is about a denial and a lack of a confrontation. I mean, I think this goes back to, you know, the psychology of it, right? In order to change, you have to confront a truth in order to move past it. And America, and, and you know, and it, go, it goes beyond America, right? Like has, has yet to really reckon with um, and reconcile like that past. And it's ultimately the journey that we're all on right? We're all on that journey of becoming. And I will say that I speak this not from a place of listlessness or um, even tragedy, but from a place of hope. Martin Luther King says that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I wholeheartedly believe that. However, and we were talking a little bit about Afro-pessimism earlier, um, and I won't get too much into it, but essentially the the, the notions of, of Afro-pessimism says that the, the, that the black experience or, or black suffering is, is one that it cannot be repaired because blackness um, is the boundary line between who is human and who is not. And so black individuals actually serve as the boundary line between who is human and who is not. And so as long as that like boundary line is needed, um, I'm unsure of how well or how far we'll really be able to go. But I do see and understand um, and witness like quiet moments of, of care and humanity like every single day. So, and, I, and I think on an individual and a citizen level, there's just more heart there. You know, there's more heart there. And we also have to set, now I'm going on a tangent, but let me circle back. Um, I just want to say we do also need to separate like kind of like the citizen from the state, right? Because state actions and institutionalized um, parts of 
of racism make it sometimes really difficult for individuals to act in the way that they want to. So Absolutely. we're also dealing with systems, right? And this kind of goes into design. Was this part of your decision to create the Institute of Black Imagination? Yes. Um, so the Institute of Black Imagination, um, like I mentioned, came about um, with me inheriting these 2000 books from Jeffrey Holder, but also really seeing, I mean, if we want to get to um, the why is still in New York. Um, <laughs> you know, so you mentioned that I, you know, grew up in the suburbs and it's a predominantly white neighborhood, but we started out in East St. Louis, which is where my parents are from, which is on the other side of the river. And um, if you know, you can Google East St. Louis. It's a really great case study in like geographical racism. Um, but I grew up with, you know, my cousins, you know, four blocks away from me. And I moved when I was five. And as I grew up, I really began to see firsthand what environment does to life outcomes. And I started to see our lives diverge. I got to exist in this place of abundance and resources, and their lives took a very statistical route. And for me, this is really what undergirds the Institute of Black Imagination because it was very clear to me that it was designed. It was designed. The, the, where we grew up was not designed for us to thrive in. It was not designed for us to dream in. It wasn't designed for us to imagine in. And I also saw what was possible when one just had access to resources, to information, to tools. I'm a witness of it, right? I am a product of it. And so when creating the Institute of Black Imagination, it's like, what does it mean to create um, a space to give access and resources to individuals to allow them to dream, allow them to imagine as well? In 2020, via the Institute, you developed a podcast to incorporate black and brown voices around broader concepts of design. And in a recent episode with anti-disciplinary designer Adam Sally, you stated, design is a tool we use to bring our thoughts into space-time. Mm -hmm. One of the most beautiful lines of yours that I've read. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what you mean by that. Sure. It's my favorite topic. Um, I mean, I'll circle back and then I'll go forward. In 2016, I was in Athens, Greece, and I heard this phrase during this conference that all design is predictive, meaning that the designer is predicting or dictating how an end user is going to interact with any given design. Rarely is there a modular or an adaptive function on the user end. And I stepped that, it was like a throwaway line but it completely changed my life. Like I literally walked out and looked at the world and realized that this was all designed. And in, it was, in, in looking back at your childhood and the sort of divergence between you and your cousins, it's... But literally, yeah. every, I mean, I mean and it, it sounds so basic and we know it, but like everything you're looking at right now was once an idea in somebody's head. 
The shoes, my pants, this stage, the sidewalk you walked on, the subway you took, the streets, this building, the lights, your glasses, the microphone, my gloves, the table, the cup, was all immaterial. I mean, there's a lot of creative people here, right? And so you know what it means to bring an idea and translate it into space and time. And so for me, I was like, oh, that is what design is. It's the series of mechanisms or processes to bring thought into materiality. And then, you know, I asked the question, I was like, oh, well, if this is all designed, then who designed it? And that's also a pretty easy answer. And then we realize that we're actually living in embodied ideals. We are surrounded by thought, literally, solid thought. We are moving in thought at all times. And so then what does it mean to then open up that lane for other individuals to dream and imagine? And what I also love about that concept is that it makes the world feel really light because it's just thought. It's just an idea. This building is just an idea that's no more valid than the idea that you have in your head right now. The monarchy is just an idea. You can literally just think of something else tomorrow. Right? You know, seriously, yeah. you know, and so I mean, the it's world... It's incredibly powerful. The world doesn't feel so heavy. You're like, oh, you can just change your mind. That's what happened in COVID, yeah. you know? Everyone just had to change, and it was crazy how swift you're like oh we could just make another choice and for me like that I think is extremely powerful but yeah it's just it's just a translation you know of thought into space and time yeah Dario in 2020 you also made history as Tina mentioned in her introduction as the first black photographer to shoot a cover for Vanity Fair in its 106 year history which is just so heinous in so many ways. Nevertheless, you made history with your portrait of Oscar-winning actress Viola Davis. You didn't know you were the first black photographer to shoot a cover for the magazine until you asked. Did that surprise you? It surprised me. I couldn't believe that in 106 years there was not one. Not one. Was I surprised? No. Did I even find it heinous? No. It's like, if you know American history, yeah. like, it's like, is this a surprise? Talk about like, For me, I'm just like, yeah. I mean, and, and, and I wasn't even upset. Like, it wasn't like, it's interesting that I meet so much outrage when people hear that. And I'm like. Yeah. Like. Why are we surprised is really the question, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, and I, I also really took it as you know, this is a team of people because it also wasn't reactive, right? So I'd been shooting for Vanity Fair for a year prior to. So it was, it was, you know, if there are any photographers in the room, it was almost a very traditional kind of photography progression. You know, working for a magazine, you start shooting front of book portraits, you start, you know, doing other things and you kind of work your way up to, you know, hopefully a cover. So outside of the kind of historical and racialized context, it was pretty kind of straightforward in that regard. And also that they weren't choosing me in reaction to, right? Like it was like, no, we've been working together for a year. I think that it's a truth for us that none of us created the world that we find ourselves in. We all inherited this. 
we inherited these systems, these ways of being, these thoughts, these social constructs. There's not one individual in this room that is directly responsible for anything, right? Including the team at Vanity Fair. They can't speak to their history, right? They were not even alive when the magazine came. And one of my favorite questions of the two pages on my website, because I can't, but on the, on the contact page, it has one of my new favorite questions is, what will you do now, knowing what you now know? What will you do now, knowing what you now know? And ultimately, that's all we can be responsible for. Your portrait of Viola Davis was monumental, not only because of its beauty, but also because of what it represented. It wasn't just a photograph, and you credit the pose for the image to black women artists such as Lorna Simpson and Carrie Mae Weems, who often photograph subjects from behind. Um, but it also referenced another significant photograph, which we've been hearing quite a, a lot about recently, but this was actually before any of that sort of came to the cultural zeitgeist. Um, can you talk a little bit about the reference? Yeah, so um, for those not familiar, um, I referenced um, a portrait of Peter Gordon. Um, it's called Whipped Peter. And it's a pretty famous um, image of a runaway slave with scars on his back. And in doing research for anything that I'm doing, you know, I, I keep a, just a catalog of images, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of images. And when I get an assignment, I just go through them and I just, I don't even think about it. I just start pulling things that make sense, that resonate for some reason. And that was one of them. And I actually found the image to be, like at least his pose, to be one of like strength and like quite beautiful. And it was actually quite a fashion pose, you know, because he's really trying to show the scars on his back, you know, outside of the just horrific nature of, of the image. But I was also challenged. Um, and I actually don't think I've ever spoken about this, but some Samir Nasir, um, who's now the editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar, was still the fashion director at the time of Vanity Fair. She was making her transition at the time. And I was showing my reference images and and my mood boards. And she said, she's like, you know, I just want to challenge you to also think about women and how women want to be, you know, represented, a modern woman, you know, in this world. And so, you know, we all walk through life with certain privileges, right? And I get to walk through life as a cis male presenting individual. Um, I am not, you know, um, a woman, nor have I lived that life. And so that for me was one of checking my own privilege, um, but then two, realizing like, oh, actually I need to go to see how black women represent themselves, how they want to be seen. And so that's when I really went back in and started looking at the work of Lorna Simpson. I mean, familiar with, but like researching again, the work of Lorna Simpson, Carrie Mae Weems. And I started to see this, uh, Alma Thomas as well. Mm. Um, I started to see this repetition of like the face away from the camera. And I thought that was really interesting. I was like, what? And it was crazy because when the cover came out, so many people were also comparing it to the Simone Biles cover that Annie Leibovitz did yes. for Vogue a couple of weeks prior to, and they were lambasting it. And I did not think that that was going to be the reaction. I was thinking, I was like, 
here's another image of a black woman with her back to the camera. Yeah. That's they weren't lambasting Dario's image, just to, to be clear. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Annie Leibovitz's. Yeah. And so that's actually what I was thinking about. Well, you've said that your shoot with Viola was a love letter to black women, but I actually think it's broader than that. I think it's a love letter to humanity. But part of the issue that arose with the comparison of the Simone Biles photo to uh, your photo of Viola Davis was the issue that some white photographers have shooting non-white skin. And the notion that white people don't know how to adjust lighting for non-white subjects. And you've addressed this with a recent project that you were commissioned to do with Adobe. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, Yes. So um, Adobe reached out and um, asked me to design um, presets for Lightroom, specifically geared for people of color. And they had, you know, deep skin tones, medium skin tones, and lighter skin tones. I was given medium. And it was an amazing process. Like, it was an amazing collaboration, particularly in, like, that medium skin tone range. You're actually not just dealing with, you know, people of African descent, right? You're also dealing with individuals from Southeast Asia. Like that's a that's a range that goes across. And it was really, really beautiful um, to really explore and work with a team that was extremely excited, super excited, super helpful, extremely generous, to really get down to the nuances of what it means. And I think the critique of white photographers is just a lack of sensitivity. Right, it's just a lack of sensitivity to nuance, and I think even with Annie Leibovitz, who I I actually admire her photography, and I think she's an incredible photographer. Um, you know, she just has that filter she puts on everything to make everything look like you know you're in the 1800s, like a Emily Bronte like situation, and it makes you know white folks look, you know, aristocratic and windswept, and just makes black people look ashy, and so it's like. Just make that adjust, the sensitivity to adjust, right? And I think what undergirds that is also like love, right? And care, right? Like like I saying, I see you and I want you to look your best despite my voice, despite the way I want you to be seen. And it also gives us the ability to have an abundance of viewpoints. Absolutely. Dario, the last thing I want to talk you with you about is your fellowship. The last? Yeah, okay. unfortunately. I wish I wish we had another hour or more. Um, you're wearing this hat that says Loeb on it. And um, you, are, you have a Loeb Art Lab Fellowship with Harvard University. How did this come to be? And what kind of work are you doing in the fellowship? So I am, yes, um, at Harvard doing a Loeb Fellowship right now. And to quickly explain about the Loeb Fellowship, um, it's a fellowship. They choose around nine to ten people from around the world um, working in and around the built and natural environment. And, you know, my work, you know, in defining design, I think so universally and broadly, it allows for um, different entry points to talk about design. And so... um, the fellowship allows you to take any class you want to at Harvard and MIT for and a year. And you're taking like eight classes? <laughs> I, I went down to six. <laughs> oh. 
Um, but and so I'm exploring design through all of these different lenses. So you know, taking classes in you know urban design. 3D printing and robotic with ceramics, additive manufacturing, um, taking Latin, because for me then language also becomes design because language is also a tool that you're using in order to translate your thoughts and speak to your own reality. And like any design tool, it allows for and disallows for certain things. And so for me wanting to get to at least one root, you know, there's multiple, but like getting to the to the core understanding and the meaning of words for me was really important important. Um, and then also taking classes, you know, at the Kennedy School, um, philosophy of technology, adaptive leadership, which is really looking at, you know, philosophy of technology, looking at society and the state from a systematic level through the lens of like Marx and Heidegger and Hegel. Um, but then also leading from the inside out, which is about, you know, we spoke earlier about identities. What are those lines of code that we've been taught about ourselves? What it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man, what it means to be black, what it means to be American. And seeing that we are all individually operating algorithms that are made up of these codes. And so for me, it's that's also design, right? You know, what it means to be a woman is a design construct that was designed before you got here but was not designed with you in mind. Right. And so what are the limbs, what are the legs, the feet that you're cutting off in order to fit within this pre-existing design construct, right? And I find that so many of our frustrations, I think, in life and the world internally are about that friction between who we are and, you know, the core of our essence versus this meeting of this pre-existing design construct. And I think that even goes back to why being defined as just a photographer is like, I have hands and legs, like, and you just want the trunk, you know. Makes and it makes it easier for other people to, yeah, to yeah. create the construct of who you are. And I'm not interested in, like, reducing myself for other people's level of understanding. Bravo. Bravo. <laughs> There's a there's a really great word, um, procrustean. Do you know this word? No, I don't. Procrustean. Um, it's it's actually that act of like needing to like literally sever your limbs in order to like fit into something. The morphology of it is there's a Greek myth of this guy Procrustes, and it's called a procrustean bed, and it had a certain length and height, and he would you know tie you down to the bed. And if you didn't fit, he would just cut off the parts of your body until you fit onto the bed. And Sounds so, like an episode of Criminal Minds. <laughs> so it's procrustean, yeah. How do you see what you're learning influencing what you're making? Oh, I can't wait, actually. So for me, this process has been really one of ingestion and seeing how it will inform. So I haven't really focused on the doing so much, but more on like the taking in of input. But what I'm excited about really is just to have more vocabulary, right? Just to have more vocabulary in order to speak to the things that I see, you know, in the world and be better at translating them, you know, to other individuals. And so that's really, you know, what I'm up there doing is, you know, I say I'm just I'm just up there putting more arrows in my quiver. Dario Calmiz, you are remarkable. I want to thank you for making so much work that matters. And thank you for joining me today on this very, very special episode for Creative Mornings at the School of Visual Arts Theater in New York City. 
ladies and gentlemen, the remarkable, <laughs> the brilliant Dario Kelmese. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this very special live episode of Design Matters at Creative Mornings. You can find out more about Dario Kelmese on his website, dariokelmese.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyman.